My message is from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5, on first principles. We believe in the clarity of Scripture. This is a doctrine sometimes called the perspicuity of Scripture, by which we mean that the main teachings of Scripture are simple, clear, and obvious. Now, there are plenty of things in Scripture that are complicated and difficult to understand, but the main teaching of God's Word is simple and clear. And here is such a case where Paul tells us what his fundamental commitment was. And so, in verse 2, he tells us what the focus of his ministry was, for I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is what he wanted to know, and this is what he preached, and everything else faded in the background. And so if you ever wonder what's the main point of Scripture, what is it the the Bible is trying to tell me, what do I have to know? Well, we're told pretty clearly in verse 2 what the Apostle Paul thought was important. First, it has to do with the Word of God. Verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. Paul emphasized God's testimony or His Word. And we know that Scripture is powerful and true and inspired. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that will be whole and complete. And so he came declaring the testimony of God. And if you look at the Apostle Paul's ministry, you will see that it was a Bible-focused and Word-centered ministry. When he talked to the elders at Ephesus about his ministry, you can read about this in Acts 2, verses 20 and following, he said that he taught and testified and preached and declared the full counsel of the Word of God. His ministry was Bible-centered. And if you want to know what he did when he first went to Corinth, you can read about that in Acts 18. And in Acts 18, verses 4 and 11, Paul says that he reasoned and persuaded and taught according to the Word of God. His emphasis was bible centric, bibliocentric, dealing with God's Word or testimony. He also tells us what he did not emphasize. He did not emphasize human wisdom, right? I came to you not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. The focus was on God's testimony. He didn't come with rhetorical eloquence. The Greek word here is logos, and some translations will differ as to how they render it, but maybe, you know, superior, excellent speech. He didn't come emphasizing the rhetorical value 
of the message. Nor did he come with human sophistication. And the Greek word is sophos or wisdom. Just before he went to Corinth, he had been at Athens. And you can read about this in Acts 17. And Paul had a belly full of philosophers and human wisdom at Athens. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 1, you can see what Paul's thoughts are about human wisdom, the wisdom of this world. Chapter 1, verse 17. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be of none effect. Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And so for all the fancy pants philosophers sitting up there at Mars Hill in Athens, speaking dismissively of these things that they didn't understand. The Apostle Paul is straightforward saying, I'm not coming with human wisdom. I'm emphasizing the testimony of God. And this was consistent with the emphasis of the Reformation. The Reformers emphasized plain preaching, not polished discourse. They wanted their message and testimony to focus on God's Word and Jesus Christ and the doctrine of the cross and personal application. First principles, Paul emphasizes the testimony of God or the Word of God in contrast to human sophistry and speculation. Second, he emphasized Jesus Christ. Verse 2, For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ. The second thing he emphasized was the importance of proclaiming and knowing Jesus Christ. You will see in verse 2 his intentionality. He determined not to know anything else among you, save Jesus Christ. I've told you before about being one time at the Old Tenant Church in Monmouth, New Jersey, which is a spectacular old Presbyterian church. Uh, the church was organized in the late 1600s by Scottish refugees from the killing times, and the current building is nearly 300 years old. And it's this marvelous old structure with, you know, these big galleries up on the second floor, and, you know, it's really untouched. There's a low pulpit and then the high pulpit, and it's really impressive. It's done in this old Scottish style. And uh, when I was there, and I asked for permission to do this, I asked if I could go up and stand in the high pulpit in this great old Presbyterian church. It was just super cool. And then I noticed this brass plate on the pulpit. Now, this is a pulpit 
where George Whitfield had preached, where Jonathan Edwards had preached, where John Witherspoon had preached. It's a pretty, pretty classy place. There is this brass plate that has the words of Scripture from uh, John 12, 21, Sir, we would see Jesus. And so there's a reminder here that's been there for a long time. I don't think the plate's original to the church, but been there for a long time that the preacher's emphasis has to be upon Jesus. And if you look at the Apostle Paul's ministry, that's exactly what he did. And so when he began his ministry in Acts 9.20, we're told straight away he preached Christ. He emphasized the deity of Christ. He went into the synagogues and explained that Jesus was the Son of God. And he emphasized the resurrection of Christ when he went to Athens and he was at the Areopagus in Acts 17. He preached Jesus and the resurrection. The philosophers didn't follow him, really. Is it like two gods, Jesus and the resurrection? Didn't understand what was going on, but he emphasized Jesus his crucifixion, his resurrection, and a coming day of judgment, and how God calls all men everywhere to repentance. And so Paul's ministry emphasized Jesus Christ. And the Christian church, the faithful and orthodox Christian church, has always emphasized Jesus Christ. Matthew 16, 16, Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. John expressing why he wrote the gospel according to John, John 20, 31 says, These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. In 1 John 4, 2, Hereby you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And so there's great emphasis upon the proclamation of Jesus Christ. But I also note in verse 2 that Paul emphasizes knowing Jesus Christ. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ. There's an emphasis upon the knowledge of the Savior, the knowledge of the Lord. Jesus put it this way, John 17, 3, just before he went to the cross. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Or look here again at 1 Corinthians 2, 2. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ. And then go to Philippians 3. I'll read Philippians 3, verses 8 through 10, these are verses, I suspect, that are familiar to you. But in Philippians 3, having discussed his own great resume, 
and the Apostle Paul knew it all, done it all. He had a pretty impressive religious resume. And then he says this, starting with verse 7, But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yet doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ." And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings in being made conformable unto his death. So it's not what he's done, it's not what he's known, it's not his resume, but rather he wants Christ to know Christ, not having his own righteousness by his own accomplishments and by the law, but having the righteousness that comes through faith. He counts everything as garbage compared with the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians 2. Paul emphasized the Word of God. He emphasized Jesus Christ, the one that he proclaimed, and the one that he wanted to know. Third, he emphasized the cross of Christ. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified, the last part of verse 2. Paul's intention was to know Christ and to know the cross of Christ. If you look at 1 Corinthians 1, you will see the importance or centrality of the cross. Verse 17, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Verse 18, For the preaching of the cross is to them which perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. Verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks, foolishness. In other words, a central part of Paul's proclamation was of Jesus Christ who was crucified, and he did that to pay the penalty of our sins. There are forms of Christianity that speak with great affection about Jesus, but say nothing about the cross or nothing about the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Central to our faith and central to our hope is that our Redeemer came and not only taught us and lived a sinless life, but he suffered for us and paid the penalty for our sins in his body on the tree. And was buried and raised again and ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God, and is coming again. But before we talk about the glorification of Jesus Christ, we talk about his sufferings and what he suffered for us 
and our hope as Christians is tied to his perfect redeeming work on the cross. Christ purchased our salvation. He died for our sins. He paid the penalty of our sins. And as Paul teaches us elsewhere, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.7. And Scripture teaches us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Or as Peter puts it, 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. Historians who discuss evangelicalism always emphasize that the evangelical faith is crucicentric, which means that the cross is central. There's an emphasis upon what Jesus did at Calvary in paying the price for our sins, and that our salvation and that our hope of eternal life is based on what he accomplished for us. And as we come to the Lord's table, we see visible reminders of Christ's broken body and shed blood. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26, we are told, For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. In other words, the Lord's Supper is a perpetual testimony of our hope in Jesus Christ and in his substitutionary work on our behalf. There's something really humbling about that, that we have an opportunity as a congregation in observing the Lord's Supper to give a public testimony to our confidence and our hope. Our hope is not in anything that we do or can do, our hope is in what Jesus Christ has done. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, I was determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Fourth, a fourth thing that Paul emphasizes is sovereign grace. Verses Three through five. If you're not a Presbyterian, just hold on and let me talk about this a little bit. But in verses three through five, we see a remarkable statement of the power of God to save frail and fallen human beings. Verse three, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Now, if you're like me, you tend to think of the Apostle Paul as having a pretty good command on theology and really knowing where it's at, and I think that is true. But Paul's own testimony is of his weakness and his fear as he came to proclaim the testimony of God. He did not want his speech and his preaching 
to be in terms of human wisdom, verse 4. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and power. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now here's the point, is that your faith should stand upon God's power not on the Apostle Paul who's super smart, but it stands on the power of God. Now think about this idea of God's power. It's mentioned twice here in verses 4 and 5. The Greek word is dunamis, which is the root for our word dynamite. Paul talks about God's power or God's dynamite in these two verses, that your faith depends upon the power of God. He's already spoken about that in chapter 1, verse 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. Or you might remember the language of Romans 1.16, where the Apostle Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. The Apostle Paul talks about God's power. And we believe that effectual calling is when the Spirit of God applies the gospel message to our hearts and brings hard, the hard-hearted to faith and trust in Christ calling us to faith and repentance. In fact, we might talk about God's calling, God's effectual calling, because if you've made it to 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5, you've already covered Paul's theme in 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And so if you like to think of yourself as smart, strong, noble, <laughs> God's not so much interested in you. Verse 20 tells, 27 tells us what God has chosen. And the word is used repeatedly here. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, the things that are not, to bring to naught things that are. And so here there is an emphasis upon God's calling, God's choosing, God's election. The Apostle Paul, in describing the gospel, weaves in the themes of sovereign grace. And it's all for God's glory. Verse 1, 29, chapter 1, verse 29, that no flesh should glory in his presence, but of him 
are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. There is never an opportunity for you, Christian, to say, I'm pretty good. I've got it figured it out. I figured it out. I'm the one who did the choosing after all. The scripture says that there is never any occasion for you to celebrate yourself or to glory in yourself. All glory goes to God. It is God's power and God's calling and God's glory and even we could say God's mystery. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for if they had known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, the Apostle Paul, verse 7, talks about God's mystery, the wisdom of God, the mystery which God ordained before the world unto our glory. When Paul writes to Titus, in Titus 1-2, he talks about the promise of eternal life and the pledge of eternal life which was given to us before the world began. And we know from Scripture that God's eternal purpose was to redeem a people in Jesus Christ. That is the mystery of God, the unfathomable mystery of God that he would determine and purpose and plan to save a sinful people through Jesus Christ to his glory. What an amazing truth. And so the opportunity that we have as we come to the Lord's table to proclaim his death and to proclaim the mystery of God and to celebrate our unworthiness because our God is worthy and he is merciful and our Savior is good. The final thing, we've talked about the testimony of God, Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, sovereign grace. Fifth, your faith. And this from verse 5. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And so Paul sets all of this up in his discussion to remind them of the importance of your faith. Your faith stands on the power of God. Your faith is in Jesus Christ. Your salvation rests upon Christ's perfect work at the cross. And there's abundant testimony to this throughout Scripture. We saw it in Philippians 3. 
To the Philippian jailer, the apostle said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. In Romans 10, 9, Paul says, If you shall confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. In Romans 5, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Or listen to the language of 1 Corinthians 15. I'll read a few verses in 1 Corinthians 15. We've talked about the perspicuity of Scripture or the clarity of Scripture and how the essential message of God's Word is clear, unmistakable, and unavoidable, and we see it here as well. 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also ye are saved, if you keep in memory which I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. In other words, a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And so our faith, preached by the Apostle Paul, by the Apostles, recorded in Scripture, our faith, first of all, emphasizes that Christ died for our sins. As we come to the Lord's table, we come to have our strength our faith strengthened. We have visible reminders of Christ's sacrifice at the cross. We have visible reminders of God's mercy and grace. There's an invitation to Christians to come to the table and to commune with our Lord, to have our faith nourished and strengthened because we know that Christ died for our sins and that our goal is to know Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the gospel message so clearly presented in your word. We're thankful for the Lord's table and the invitation that we have as believers to gather together to see visible signs proclaiming the importance of Christ's work And we're thankful that we, as a congregation of the Lord Jesus, have an opportunity to express our faith and proclaim, yet again, the death of Christ and the salvation that is ours, purposed before the beginning of time, but completed and accomplished in space and time history, and now brought to memory and proclaimed in this sacrament. We pray that you would strengthen our faith. We pray that you would help us to know Jesus Christ and him crucified, that we might bring to you all praise and glory, our great God of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Turn with me to hymn number 216, Crown Him with Many Crowns. Let's stand together as we sing 216. 